0: When we approach Bart's Doctrine of God, we have to remember the two-sphere structure we outlined in the previous lecture, still here up on the board. Using Van Til's terms, we have geschichte, the upper register, if you will, and then historie, the lower. Put in rough terms, the former is God's sphere, the latter is ours. We do not find God here in our time. For Bart, our sphere, our time sphere, is characterized by secularity. It's fallen, sinful, and is nothingness. It is only in God's time that we have all that is divine. This is the time and place of Jesus Christ. It is the time and place of His grace for us. It is this sphere, then, that we have in view when speaking of God. Bart's doctrine of God is very unique in this sense. It is not unique for his immediate context. There are others in his day who are doing similar things. That is because, in part, the history of modern thought, since the rise of the Enlightenment, is characterized by a rejection of traditional metaphysics. The term metaphysics was a catchword for Greek philosophy. Rejected were the old outmoded medieval commitments to notions of static, unchanging substances. The idea that something had an eternal, unalterable essence was replaced with a kind of dynamism relative to time. Now, how that dynamism was developed would differ from thinker to thinker. But for our purposes, that anti-metaphysical sentiment was in the atmosphere in which Bart developed his thinking. And he himself was very much committed to it, which already from the start places Bart in a somewhat tenuous position relative to the tradition. Is it possible to remain at all, in any meaningful sense of the word, connected to the Catholic tradition when there is such a radical break with it at its most fundamental, foundational, ontological ground? It is Van Til's contention that Barth does, in fact, forsake the Catholic tradition. While some attempts have been made, most notably by McCormick and Hunziger, to show that Barth maintained basic orthodoxy, all that has, in fact, been shown is that he maintained a form of orthodoxy, but certainly not its substance that is yet to be shown or proven. Yes, it can be said that Barth has a two-nature Christology, as McCormick says, However, Barth's position is much closer to Eutychianism, which is why some can advance a form of kenoticism, Bruce McCormick, or a form of theosis, Adam Nieder, all on Barthian soil. Now, Van Til was well aware of this anti-metaphysical attitude. He was also aware of the system Barth offered in its place, and this is what Van Til called activism. We'll discuss this more in a moment. But what really alarmed Van Til was not simply that Barth attempted to replace an old outmoded philosophical system, but placing substance, but replacing substance with act had theological implications, had theological consequences. Consequences which put Barth, according to Van Til, outside of the Catholic tradition. Those implications led to what Van Til calls correlativism. In short, correlativism is the idea that God and man relate in such a way that both have need of the other for their identity and being. And we'll unpack these points in turn. Activism and correlativism. So first of all, let's talk about Van Til on Barth's activism. But before getting into Van Til's insights, let me just set forth some comments orienting us to the subject. And the first thing that we can say about it is that it's a fairly Uncontroversial observation. In today's literature, it is referred to as actualism. Some call it actualistic ontology, and it denotes the idea that categories of being are no longer understood in terms of metaphysics or static categories of essence or substance. Rather, questions of being are understood in terms of act. To put it simply, things are what they do or what is done unto them. Furthermore, actualism is not unique to Bart. It's the kind of thing that is in the air at the time. And at the time <laughs> other categories were being floated as better ones, better than actualism or act, for describing being an essence. Act is one of them, but other candidates were were bantered about, including time, as one that would be something that replaces categories of substance and essences. And Barth makes ample use of both, time and act, in his theology. Time and act are two key concepts for him, and he is free to float between one or the other. And he uses both to describe the being and existence of God. One more word by way of preface. The exact nature of Barth's actualistic ontology is not entirely agreed upon. Without getting into the details here, There is some debate over what exactly it entails on the one side call it the mccormick school you have the full actualistic idea and that is when read consistently bart's actualism instructs us to think of god's being as constituted by his act of grace for us in jesus christ it's a constitutive thing it's this kind of thing act that renders god's being what it is it makes god's being it constitutes his being as what it is that it is not a pre-existent thing but it is a thing that is what it is by virtue of the acts of god towards us in jesus christ but according and on the other side to the hunziger school god's act does not give rise to his being rather his triune being is the presupposition of his act of grace says the Hunziker School, in particular, his act of election. The one hot but now cooled debate arose from a controversial argument and article by Bruce McCormick entitled Grace and Being in the year 2000. The idea there was that for Bart, God's gracious act of election constituted God's being as triune. This was a case for a full actualistic view. And the reaction was swift, and the debate as prolonged as it was hot. Hunziger and Molnar were at the forefront, arguing for a more orthodox Bart. This Bart affirmed the self-contained, preexistent triune God as quite self-contained, distinct from His electing grace. So much more needs to be said, but we'll leave it for now and return to the question a little bit later. As we will see, Van Til had already anticipated the debate in his critique of Bart, and recognized the importance of Bart's actualistic method early on. So, Van Til explains this when he says that according to Bart, and here I quote Van Til, God's essence is His act of revelation, and His act of revelation is His act of reconciliation, and His act of reconciliation is His act of redemption this activism requires the complete rejection of all antecedent being god's activity ad intra that is to say within himself is correlative there's that word correlative we'll talk about it more in a moment to his activity ad extra outside of himself there are several things here to note first the reference to god's essence and antecedent being second The identity of God's being with His acts of revelation, reconciliation, and redemption. And third, the reference to God's internal and external activity. So let's take these in turn. First, Van Til's reference to God's essence and antecedent being. For those convinced of the traditional doctrine of God, the idea that God has a being all His own is somewhat of a snore. So is the idea that God's being is prior to ours. We sort of all assume that. To say it, to state it that way, is hardly controversial for the tradition. That God and His being existed prior to and apart from us is hardly a thing that is controversial within at least Orthodox reform circles. It is hardly a controversial thing in our circles to say that God has His existence in Himself, that He is assay. Or that his being is self-contained, not derived from something outside or other than himself. That God's eternity is pure without mixture with time. That God is present everywhere without being contained anywhere. All this is what Van Til means by God's antecedent being. It is God's being quite prior to and independent from creation. It is the being and existence of God with all of his perfections, understood as being self-contained, not constituted by His acts towards creation or the acts of the creature towards Him. You will notice that this essence, or antecedent being, is something that is denied by Bart. Now, we must quickly qualify that statement here. Bart does, in fact, talk about the antecedent being of God. Barth does not explicitly deny that God has an antecedent being. In fact, Barth doesn't actually deny much of the tradition at all, outwardly and expressly. Quite on the contrary, in the church dogmatics, you can find him affirming it, at least in a formal sense, using the language, using the words, using the concepts of the tradition. But when he is read in context, and those statements are read, within the broader context of how he is framing the discussion on these particular doctrines, we will soon see that he goes on to deny such things by way of revamping orthodox doctrine with his actualism. And that is the case here. Barth affirms God's antecedent being, but then he redefines it. And he redefines it along the lines of God's acts. What God does defines his being. For Bart, there is no being of God that stands back of his actions. So when Bart speaks about an antecedent being, do not imagine in your minds that he is thinking about a being of God that is quite prior to and independent of his actions. Remember, as we said before in the previous lecture, for Bart there is no Lagos sarkos, And we'll unpack that a little bit more in a moment. For Bart, there is an essence and a being of God, but that essence is never alone. But it is always and everywhere accompanied by the acts of God's free grace in Jesus Christ for us. In fact, as we'll soon see, it is these acts of grace that constitute God's antecedent being as what it is. Second, The identity of God's being with His acts of revelation, reconciliation, and redemption. You will notice the identity of all God's acts. So if we look at our board over here, earlier we were talking about the reciprocal or the mutual relationship between God and man and Jesus Christ in Revelation. But this mutual relationship doesn't pertain just to Revelation, but it pertains to all the acts of God including his acts of reconciliation and redemption. Van Til mentions here three, but that can be extended. It can also include the act of creation, incarnation, resurrection, and so forth and so on. So, in addition, in other words, to revelation, reconciliation, and redemption, we can include the way in which Bart reconstructs his doctrine of creation, incarnation, and resurrection along the same lines. Do notice that the three acts here are really actually one act. So, reconciliation, revelation, redemption, these are all one act in Jesus Christ. And as such, they occur in this special time sphere of what Van Til calls Geschichte, And therefore... These particular acts cannot be understood as sequential, historical events in our time. They occur up here. They do not occur down here. Down here, you have historical, sequential, ordered events. Up here, it's all one event. We'll come back to this later. But suffice to say for now, Bart takes what we ordinarily think of as real calendar time sequential events and he consolidates them into one transcendent event in God's time for us, in what Van Til calls "geshikta." It is the one event, the Christ event, as Van Til calls it, which carries with it several gracious benefits that are given and accomplished all simultaneously. So in other words, there is no revelation where there is also not reconciliation. There is no reconciliation where there is not redemption. And so forth and so on so revelation reconciliation incarnation resurrection redemption accomplished and applied christ's humiliation and exaltation do not occur as distinct sequential events in our time rather they occur once for all in the event of jesus christ in the special time sphere called god's time for us but what is more is the identity of this event with god himself There is no God back of this event of His grace, and that event just is the person of Jesus Christ, which means there is no God back of Jesus Christ. So, Bart can say that Jesus Christ is God, a perfectly orthodox statement, but Bart can also say that God is Jesus Christ. Orthodox theology, of course, affirms the former, but not the latter. And we might, do to well, we might do well to ask the question, well, why? First, we rightly affirm that Jesus Christ is God. Because in Him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Colossians 1.19 In Christ, the second person of the Trinity, in His full divinity, without measure and without remainder, was united to His human nature without separation or confusion. However, it was the second person of the Trinity and Him alone upon whom the Incarnation terminates. But since the finite humanity of Christ cannot contain the infinite divine nature, we cannot make an exhaustive one-to-one identification between God and Jesus Christ in a simplicitar way. Now, this is the basic doctrine of what we call finitum non capax infinitum. In other words, there is no one-to-one relationship between the full humanity and the full divinity of Christ, as if they are both equal participants in the person of Christ. No. The human is finite, and therefore it's contingent. The divine is infinite, and therefore it is necessary. And while Jesus is fully God and fully man, nevertheless, the divinity comes first the humanity comes second. And since it is the Son and not the Father or the Spirit whose person and mission terminates in the Incarnation, the Father and the Spirit never become incarnate. They do not indwell the humanity of Christ. Therefore, when asking the question, who is God, the answer necessarily includes more than just saying Jesus Christ. The answer includes the Trinity. But the answer to who is Jesus Christ does not include the entirety of the Trinity, but it includes one person of the Trinity, albeit in His full divinity. Now, to risk putting too fine a point on it, according to Orthodox Catholic theology, the predicative statement, Jesus Christ is God, is not reversible. It is not reversible. We say Jesus Christ is God, but we cannot reverse that and say God is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God predicates something about the person of Christ. Christ is a divine person, the eternal Lagos. But to say God is Jesus Christ ends up per- predicating something about God, namely that He is Jesus Christ. But God is not Jesus Christ, unless from all of eternity God was never without the humanity of Jesus Christ. And of course, that is exactly what Bart is saying. There is never A God or a divine substance that ever was or ever could be independent or prior to the God-man, Jesus Christ. And therefore, Bart can say that God is Jesus Christ. Because this reality of the mutual relationship between God and man in the Christ event in Jesus Christ is not the kind of thing that is contingent upon the sequential events of history. Quite on the contrary, this is a once for all, everlasting, eternal event. Now, all this is important for two reasons. First, because this idea of saying that God is Jesus Christ points up the actualism in Bart's thought. Second, because it also points up his Christological focus. The act of God in what constitutes his being, he has his being in his act. But the act which constitutes his being just is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God's grace for us, in whom God is wholly revealed and we are wholly redeemed. Therefore, Bart denies the idea of a Lagos sarcas. That is a Lagos who is not enfleshed. The eternal Lagos just is Jesus Christ, according to Karl Barth. There is no divine logos that stands behind and independent of Jesus Christ. That, for Bart, would be an abstraction. Third, the reference to God's internal and external activity. And here, Van Til refers to God's activities ad intra and ad extra. The former, ad intra, is God's activity internal to God. The latter, ad extra, is God's activity towards us. God's internal activity pertains to his absolute being. God is pure act on the basis of orthodox theology. The being of God is alive and living even apart from creation according to orthodox theology. For the Father begets and loves the Son and the Spirit, and the Son is begotten and loves the Father and the Spirit, and the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Then there is The external activity of God. Generally, in Orthodox theology, this is understood as God's acts towards creation. These acts include things like creation, redemption, etc. Traditionally, these are related to, but they are distinct. The external acts of God are distinct from the internal. The internal are absolute. They pertain to the being of God. They have no beginning. They have no end. The external, however, are relative. They depend upon the internal, but they are not necessary to it on the basis of orthodox theology. The internal are the absolute activities of God. The external are His free acts, that He is free to choose to do or not. And the relation between them is unidirectional. What do we mean by that when we say that the relationship between the internal and the external is unidirectional? directional. It means that the internal affects the external. Who God is in Himself has a unidirectional influence upon the things that are external to God, and it never goes the other way around there is no backwash of that arrow as it were into the being of god from the things that are external to him but van til says that bart rejects the unidirectional relation and he introduces what we might call then a bidirectional that the flow of influence goes both ways it goes Two ways. It's a two-way relationship. Not only does the being of God affect His acts towards us, but His acts toward us, according to Bart, affects the being of God. Put another way, what God does affects who He is. In traditional theology, it was understood that God acted upon creation without creation acting upon Him. That is what the doctrine of God's impassibility and His aseity were all about. God is never acted upon from outside of Himself. He is never a passive recipient of formative action. In no way is His being constituted by His acts. God is being and is never becoming on the basis of Orthodox theology. If God were becoming, then He would be mutable. And this is the heart of Barth's actualism. This is what it means at its core, it means that God's being is, in some sense, determined by or constituted by His acts ad extra. This, in effect, turns the traditional doctrine of God completely on its head. Now, there are some ways in which Bart and some of his followers seem to mitigate the obvious problems with this approach. The kind of becoming that is in view here seems to be an eternal one, according to Bart and his interpreters, sort of. Bart's view of eternity and time is complex and ambiguous. But as far as I could tell, it seems that for Bart, God's being is in his becoming and is something that occurs in a kind of non-process kind of way. Using Van Til's language, it is the kind of thing that occurs in Geshikta, and in Geshikta alone. For that is where all God's acts towards creation occur. For they all occur in Jesus Christ. Whether we're talking about election, creation, revelation, reconciliation, incarnation, resurrection. And so these things, as they are in Jesus Christ, are what determine the nature and being of God. And they do so in that transcendent sphere of God's grace. And so for Bart, there is no time when God is not. So it is not as if God's being changes over time for Bart. He just always was this God, the God who has his being in this trans-temporal act, so that Barth could, should not be confused with someone like Hegel, nor with process theology, even though both Bart, Hegel, and process theology share a common problem, and that is the correlativism that is in their structure of thought. But nevertheless, we have to appreciate that at no point in Bart's theology does God break into our time and, in our time, get Himself caught up in the process of cause and event relationships, and therefore end up in a process theology or in something like Hegelianism? That's not exactly the way in which Bart understands it. Nevertheless, there is a correlative relationship of mutual dependence of identity between God and man in Jesus Christ in this supra-temporal event. Let's next talk about Van Til on Barth's correlativism. And this is where, as you can see, as we've been saying, correlativism comes in. It means, in short, that God's being, to be what it is, or to be what it becomes, is in need of something outside of and in addition to it. In this way, God has need of creation, even as creation has need of Him. The word mutualism is another word for the same idea. Van Til puts it this way, and I quote, Throughout his various writings, Barth has employed the concept of correlativity in order to do away with the notions of God in himself and man in himself. For all practical purposes, God is nothing but that which he is in his relationship to man, and man is nothing but that which he is in relationship to God. Both God and man are wholly exhausted in Christ. Thus, Bart's critical idea of correlativity continues to make havoc with the very foundations of historic Christianity. Here it is important for us to note several things. First, the abolition of the in-himself idea. Second, the necessity of the relationship between God and man. And third, the Christological linchpin of the exhaustive relationship, and we'll take each of these in turn. First, the abolition of the in-himself idea. The correlativism of Bart is incompatible with Orthodox theology proper. Orthodox theology proper believes in the self-contained ontological trinity. To be sure, there is diversity in both theology proper and Trinitarian theology among theologians throughout the history of the Church. And there are some theologians who have held to the in-himself idea more consistently in others. But leaving the particulars aside for a moment, it is the common assumption throughout most of church history that God has His being in and of Himself, that God is derived from no other, and that He has His being, unalterably so, from all of eternity, and absolutely so. Further, it has been the assumption that God has had His being quite prior to and independent of His acts toward creation, such that when He relates to creation, according to Orthodox theology, at no point does He lose that self-contained being, nor is anything ever added to Him. Again, I'm aware of quirks in the system, as it were. The idea of theosis, as you see it in Church history, is an example of such a quirk to this Orthodox doctrine of God. How theosis can consistently square with an absolute self-contained God in himself is somewhat beyond me. Thomas' idea of the beatific vision seems to take away, at the back end of his theology, what he gives at the front end. There is also the controversial matter of the analogia entis. Leaving aside for the moment whether or not Thomas held to it, suffice it to say that such an idea would upend aseity. Be that as it may, the historic position has always been that God is self-contained and has His being in Himself, and in Himself alone, prior to and apart from creation and His acts towards creation. And Bart's position is self-consciously opposed to all of that. He abolishes the idea that God has His being in and of Himself alone. It should be noted, out of fairness to Bart, that for him it is not as if the creature, by an act of His will, is determining God's being. Barth would reject that notion entirely. For Barth, this determining is a self-determining. It is an act of the divine will. And as current scholarship has shown, this self-determination takes place in an act of election. In the act of election, Jesus Christ is in Himself both the electing God and the elect man. Christ just is, according to Barth, the decree of God. There is no election apart from Christ. And this too is an act of God in God's time for us, the upper register there. And this act is one that determines the very identity of the being of God, according to Bart. There is no being of God apart from His act of election in Christ. And so you can see this is not process theology. There is no in-time actualization of the being of God, according to Bart. There is no Hegelian idea becoming. The God who is for us in Christ just is the eternal, self-same God. Nevertheless, it is still not the God of Orthodox theology either. The God of Orthodox theology has his being in himself. The God of Bart has his being, in some sense, determined by the creature. Because it is determined by the creature in Christ... The divine nature takes on a distinctly Jesus shape, we might say, which is a real problem considering that the nature of Jesus is flesh, and according to Bart, it's fallen flesh. Jesus, according to Bart, was fully human, suffering all the infirmities common to man, including sin. But according to orthodoxy, Jesus suffered from infirmities common to man without sin. The implications of that for the doctrine of God within an actualistic ontology and when carried out to its logical conclusion yields a God who is the polar opposite from orthodox theology. Which, by the way, of course, is Bart's intention. That ought not to be a controversial statement. Bart self-consciously forsook the tradition, or rather sought to overturn it, and to reconstruct a different system in its place, New wine, according to Bart, could not be held in old wineskins. Second, the necessity of the relationship between God and man. Closely associated with the first point is this one. Because the idea of God in himself is abolished, then God needs man for his being and identity. Bart would not put it that way, of course. To say need is to put God in man's debt in such a way that Bart would reject out of hand. Yet nevertheless, given his actualistic ontology, this is the logical conclusion. It is a conclusion that is arrived at by good and necessary consequence from the principles he has laid down. It is so good and necessary from Bart's starting points that Bart has either to accept the logical consequences or to change his starting points. But if God is wholly revealed in His time for us, then man, in the humanity of Christ, knows God fully, comprehensively, exhaustively. Therefore, man's knowledge on Bart's system must necessarily be identical to God's knowledge. And if God's knowledge is identical with Himself, and God's knowledge is exhaustively known by man in Christ, then man must necessarily be identical with God. So, not only is the creator-creature distinction violated at one point in Bart's system— but it is violated at every point. God and man are wholly identical with one another in the theology of Karl Barth. Van Til would say, then, that Barth's problem is not just rationalism, but what is more, it is pantheism. Not in the most technical sense of the word is it quite pantheism, but that's the word that Van Til uses when the being of man and the being of God Become at some point or another confused or conflated. And that is what we have in Bart. Van Til is clear that this is a qualified form of pantheism. It is not straight-up pantheism, but it is dialectical pantheism. That is because God and man have no contact in our time in the system uh, that theology of Bart has developed. But rather, the contact is only in God's time for us. So there is no contact between God and us here. The contact, however, is exhaustive up here in Geschichte. They are wholly identified. And it is this identity that for Van Til is key to Bart's correlativism. As an aside, this is an area that Van Til's critics need to grapple with. Many critics take Van Til to task for drawing conclusions conclusions which Barth himself never affirmed or expressly stated. But it is itself a thoroughly modern assumption that one must say something expressly in order to draw conclusions about their thought. But that is to remove the use of reason and logic in the process of interpreting theologians. Not that reason or logic trump express statements, but reason and logic work with express statements and draw their natural entailments. Now, of course, once Van Til's argument is heard, one could argue that Van Til's reasoning is, is in error at some point, but that needs to be demonstrated, and Van Til's argument may not be dismissed out of hand, as it often is by those who have criticized Van Til's criticism of Karl Barth. Third, the Christological linchpin of the exhaustive relation. Christological linchpin of the exhaustive relation that obtains between God and the creature in Geshikta. We have already indicated this point, but the mutual correlative relation between God and man is Christologically qualified. It is not as if God comes down into our time and fills it with His being. Rather, God and man are wholly identified in the upper dimension of God's time for us. And that identity is with man precisely in the humanity of Jesus. God and man are mutually constituted in this event, and it is here that all of God's acts toward man must be understood. In Jesus Christ, God reveals and man receives that revelation. In Jesus Christ, God is reconciler and man Is reconciled. In Jesus Christ, God elects and man is elected. The divine nature of Christ then serves the divine side of the act. This is the active side. And his human nature, in which all men are taken up into, serves the human, passive side of the equation. And together they form a unified event which takes place in the transcendent sphere of God's time for us. In conclusion, Barth's correlativism and his dialecticism go hand in hand. Barth began his theology in the Romer brief with the qualified difference between God and man. So, if you are looking at the Romer brief and you're thinking about uh, the language he picks up from Kierkegaard about the the absolute difference between time and eternity. This is where Bart begins, There's this radical separation between God and us, between eternity and time. So, if we begin there, we can understand that affirming the qualitative difference is itself not a problem. All good theology begins with a qualitative difference between God and man, between the Creator and creature. But Barth also knew, as his theology developed, that he couldn't stop there. He couldn't end there. That is because if he, if he leads with the qualitative difference, the best that one can end up with is a form of deism. He would only have, then, irrationalism. No knowledge of God, no knowledge of revelation, no knowledge of anything outside of this created sphere. And Barth knew that he couldn't end with that. So, Bart needed a second step. He also knew that bringing God down into our time sphere and erasing the qualitative difference between eternity and time, God and us, only lands us back into liberalism, Catholicism, or Protestant orthodoxy. And that option for Bart was a non-starter. And so, the question is, how do we relate God and man without eliminating that difference? And this is where the dialecticism comes in. With it, Bart can say yes and no at the same time. He could divide the question. On the one hand, God and man are opposites, opposed to each other, ontologically incongruent. That is the assumption that he begins with in the qualitative difference between eternity and time. On the other hand, there is Jesus Christ. And here, in this... God's time for us is the event of God's grace in Jesus Christ. And if we understand Jesus Christ not as an abstract person with abstract natures, but rather is the act of God in His grace toward us, and place Him or that act in God's time for us up there, then we can relate God and man in the humanity of Christ without immunitizing God in the here and now. Do you see that? So, it's genius if you think about the way in which Barth develops this to answer all of the concerns, as he saw it, of theology. You begin with the qualitative difference, and so distinguish properly God and man, but then he needs a second step of relating God and man, and he does it all up here. So here, God and man are always separated, here they are always wholly identified. And there is the dialectical relationship so that, so that Bart can say yes and no at the same time. This is the genius of Bart, and it is genius. He figured out how to have the creator-creature distinction and then how to relate God and man without pulling God down, immunitizing God within our own sphere. He sought to recover the big God of classical orthodoxy, without making him abstract or his attributes speculative. At the same time, the concrete God in Christ was put in a realm that would be free from man's handling, and in particular, the critics and the historians. So you see, God can maintain in Jesus Christ His own unique ontological integrity without becoming confused with man or our time, and at the same time, the distinction is there, but also the, the absolute univocal relationship between God and the creature. But Bart declined to take the road of the Reformed faith on this one. The Reformed faith also affirms the qualitative difference between God and man. It also affirms that God can and does relate to creation, and He does so without ever becoming one with creation. How exactly God relates to creation without becoming one with it is the true point of mystery in the Christian faith. God is eternal, but He relates to time without becoming temporal. He does so by condescending to our time without ever getting caught up in the stream of cause and event sequential events. God is uncreated, according to Orthodox Reformed theology, but He also relates to creation. And He does so without ever becoming identical with creation. The eternal logos is by nature without flesh, yet He takes on flesh without ever becoming identified with the flesh. At no point in Orthodox Reformed theology is there any form of correlativity. Yet there is always sweet, intimate, proper, biblical communion and religion. There is always the providential control of God in, among, and with, and over creation. At every point of creation, there is the revelation of the Creator who is forever blessed. And Reformed orthodoxy understands that God enters into our time without ever becoming one with it so that god reveals himself to us at every point of our experience whether internal or external but for bart there can be no breaking in of god into our real time there can only be the taking up of our nature into the nature of jesus christ in that eternal, transcendent act of reconciliation. And it's the doctrine of reconciliation, as Barth articulated it, to which we will now turn.